Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This week, we are joined by the brilliant writer who put these words in Seth Rogen's mouth. In old country of Shlupska, I am ditch digger. As far as jobs in Shlups go, it's pretty good. We are the Greenbounds, and we have American dream. I find good job in Pickle Factory. Sarah, I make this vow. 100 years, our family will prosper. And then one day, everything changed. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and today we have something a little bit different for this late summer episode of the podcast. Since I first started reading his short stories in The New Yorker nearly 15 years ago, I have just been such a big fan of my guest on today's show, Simon Rich. In addition to being the youngest writer ever hired on Saturday Night Live, Simon has brought his totally unique comedic sensibility to shows like Man Seeking Woman, Miracle Workers, and last summer's HBO Max movie, An American Pickle, starring Seth Rogen as both a Brooklyn hipster and his own Eastern European immigrant great-grandfather who got preserved in a vat of pickle juice and comes back to life a century later. Like all of Simon's work, it's very high concept and very funny. Now, since he's out with a new collection called New Teeth, I asked Simon to come on The Last Laugh to read us an excerpt from one of those stories and talk about his prolific career as a comedy writer. So I really hope you enjoy this very special episode as much as I did. Here's me with the hilarious Simon Rich. Welcome to the show. I'm I'm so excited to have you here. I've just been a fan of your work for so long. And I know we we talked about uh, starting with a an excerpt from the new collection. So I would love to just kind of kick it off with that and then and then take it from there, if that's cool with you. You got it. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for the kind words and thanks for, for having me. So I'm going to read you the, uh, the beginning of a, a short story called The Big Nap. Yes. It's a, written in a style of kind of like a Chandler or a Hammett noir novel. So try to imagine that I have like a much deeper voice. <laughs> we'll try. Yeah, okay. Chapter one. The detective woke up just after dawn. It was a typical morning. His knees were scraped and bruised, his clothes were damp and soiled, and his teeth felt like someone had socked him in the jaw. He reached for the bottle he kept under his pillow and took a sloppy swig. The taste was foul, but it did the trick. Now he could sit up and think. Now he could start to figure out how to somehow face another goddamn day. He stared at his reflection in the mirror. He wasn't getting any younger. His eyes were red and bleary. His scalp was dry and itchy. He was two years old, and soon he would be three. Unless he stayed two. He wasn't sure if you stayed the age you were or if that changed. He wasn't sure about a lot of things. The only thing he knew was he was tired. Tired of this down and dirty life. Tired of trying to make some sense out of a world gone mad. The client was waiting for him in his nursery. He'd seen her around before. She'd come on the scene about a year ago, moving into the white bassinet down the hall. Some people called her sweetheart. Others called her pumpkin. But most people knew her by her full name, Baby Anna. She looked innocent enough with her big white eyes and Princess Elsa onesie, but her past was murky. The detective had heard that she came from the hospital, but there was also a rumor she'd once lived inside Mommy's tummy. It didn't add up. Still, a job was a job. Thank you so much. That was great. Yeah, I really love that story. And it's one of of many in the new collection that really focus on parenthood, which is uh, something that that I think is obviously uh, somewhat new to you and is actually very new to me because I have a a three month old at home. So it was really, oh, wow, it was really fun reading all of these stories. And and from that point of view. um, So yeah, I mean, how much has becoming a parent changed what you want to write about how you write? Because it seems like it has from reading this this new book. Well, for starters, congratulations. That's super Thank exciting. You. Thank you. Uh, three months. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, I've, I've got a, a four-year-old and almost seventh month old. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. It's completely changed my writing. I think it's, it's always really, um, it hasn't given me any new skills as a writer um, or abilities. So I still write in exactly the same way I always have. I just have uh, more things to write about. I always end up writing about whatever I'm kind of emotionally going through. Uh, so it would make sense that I, my, my stories would be 
consumed by parenting because obviously that's just where my head is at these days and what I want to focus on as a writer. Yeah, totally. So I was reading back some of your, you know, earlier interviews and things and and one thing one quote that stood out to me was you described your approach to writing as trying to write about old subjects from a new point of view. And I think that that does a pretty good job of summing up a lot of your your style. How did that become the style that you that you wanted to to take on? Was that always uh, something that was sort of in your head and what you wanted to to try or is that something that developed over time? It was somewhat conscious because I I always knew that I had a really boring life. You know, there was nothing (laughs) like there were no experiences uh, that I had that were in any way interesting or unusual or rootable or, you know, exciting. Uh, And I've also never had any uh, interesting opinions really about anything. I I kind (laughs) of just, yeah, and I pretty much kind of just go along with what my friends think about most, about most issues. And I never have like a nuanced opinion about anything. And, and uh, I've always been a pretty boring person. So, uh, in order to, in order to write stories that could hopefully like emotionally connect with other people, I knew that just writing naturalistically about my day-to-day struggles with dating or parenting, I knew nobody would, would, would care. I mean, why would they? It's, there's nothing more boring, but if I could come up with, with like captivating visceral metaphors that could like dramatize how those dull experiences really felt for me, then I thought maybe I'd have a chance of, of connecting uh, with other with other people. I also uh, read that you focus group your stories in a way of, of sending them out and letting people read them and getting feedback, which I'm not sure everyone who writes the type of stuff that you write does, but I imagine that might come from some of your uh, writer's room experience of, of that collaboration. So why is that important to you to kind of uh, have a lot of different uh, perspectives and people looking at your work before you put it out? Yeah, that's always been really, really important to me. Uh, and it's just because uh, you never really know what people are going to respond to. I often guess wrong. I uh, will often write a story and, and think it's really strong and think people will really connect with it. And then uh, I'll have you know an actor read it out loud in front of an audience and it'll fall flat or I'll send it out to uh, magazine editors or agents or friends and, and, uh, or, or trusted, trusted writing colleagues. And they'll be like, yeah, I don't, I don't really think this is very good. I think you should maybe rethink this one. And I've always put a lot of trust in the crowd. I mean, I think, um, a lot of it probably just comes from working for SNL and Pixar, which just like relentlessly focus group everything. SNL, obviously the process is, is much faster, but they do an enormous amount of, um, testing given the short time frame. Because there's the there's the there's the vetting by the producers on Tuesday night to you know the staff has written whatever seventy five sketches they cull that pile down to forty or so then they then on Wednesday uh, the cast reads out those pieces the piles whittled down again to uh, you know the the dress rehearsal and then and then they're fully staged and produced in front of yet another audience so by the time it's Saturday night you've you've really had kind of three test rounds. And at Pixar, of course, they have more than a week. They have like, you know, 10 years. <laughs> yeah. So the testing is, is much more much more intense. They, I, I, I couldn't tell you how many hundreds of rounds uh, they do per film because um, I was only there like a, like a year and a half. And that's like a quarter of the time that it takes for them to, to, to crank one of these things out. So I, in watching those two processes, I was like, huh, the, the final product is a lot better if you kind of check to see if it works. And I've always... Uh, since then, I've really, really, in the last 10 years, tried to have the same approach with these story collections. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I want to get to Pixar as well, but starting with SNL, you know, I think we're almost exactly the same age. And so I think I, like a lot of other people our age, were probably very jealous when we found out that that you uh, were hired at SNL directly out of college. I think you're still the youngest person, r- youngest writer ever hired there. So I'm just really curious about what that experience was like for you to kind of go into this, you know, hallowed ground comedy space at such a young age and kind of be thrown into the, the gauntlet of that and what, what that was like for you? Um, I mean, it was a great experience. I learned a ton. It was definitely scary, but it was also thrilling. I mean, it's really meritocratic. Like I never felt like, oh, I'm so young. They're not going to listen to me because the way it works is the sketches go up in front of people and they have no idea who wrote it. And then they're, they're picked or not based on the audience reaction. So if you're the head, if you're one of the head writers and you're like, I love this sketch and you've been at the show for 10 years and then it plays in front of the audience and the audience doesn't laugh, it doesn't go onto the show. And, and if you're some, you know, new writer who no one has ever heard of and you're, you're 
you know, your first year in TV and the sketch plays in front of the audience, they pick it. So it's like, it, it's, you don't have to deal with that kind of like, I don't know, that worrying about seniority and worrying about like politics and like, oh, does, does Lauren like me? You know, like Lauren doesn't know who you are. You know, you're a first year, <laughs> you're a first year writer. He's worried about much bigger things. You know, he worries about which sketches uh, to pick. So, so it, it was kind of like a perfect first job. And in that way, I never had to like think about things like corporately, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I imagine, you know, you were mostly writing, you know, this type of short story fiction that you write now when you, before you started there, and then all of a sudden you're writing these sketches. Um, so what was that process like of trying to rethink how something works as a, as a written piece versus um, something that has to be performed? I had a ton of, a ton of help. I mean, is, is the answer is I really just like learned a lot from older, more experienced TV writers. So I would come in with a premise because, because yeah, my first book was this collection called Ant Farm and it was a, a bunch of very short comedy stories. So going into SNL, you know, I, I had some professional experience like writing premise driven comedy and, di- and dialogue There's a lot of dialogue in those early stories. But I, I had never really written for actors, and I certainly knew absolutely nothing about television production. And it was just about like going to Seth Meyers, who was one of the head writers, and being like, here's a bunch of premises, which do you think of these have the best shot on TV? And he would be like, well, certainly not these eight, but maybe <laughs> but maybe this ninth one or this tenth one. And then, and then um, I, and I was hugely helpful. And then after I'd write it, I'd basically like walk around and be like, well, somebody please tell me how to produce this, because... Uh, I knew nothing about how to talk to props and which costumes to pick and when to use music. And, and, um, but luckily there are writers who had been there much longer and were super nice, like Emily Spivey and Paula Pell and mentioned Seth already, but also like John Lutz was, was like, uh, we overlapped for, for a couple of years and remember like one frantic night in between dress and air, I had a sketch that involved like flying and like <laughs> green screens and all this stuff that was way over my head as a first year TV, you know, writer. And Lutz just like basically did it all for me, explained to me, like, you're going to talk, you're going to pick up the phone, you're going to call this person and props, <laughs> you're going to pick up this other phone, you're going to call the control room, you're going to tell them this about the camera angles. And it was like, he just very patiently like held my hand and helped me through it. So like, I, I had like so much help when it came to the kind of learning TV part of it. Yeah. I mean, I think people probably don't realize that the writers then have to kind of produce their own sketches in that way and sort of make sure that they are what they, what they want them to be. Yeah. And I would describe myself as somebody who was like dragged kicking and screaming into that side. Of <laughs> yeah. Cause you like, prefer to sit in your uh, office and write and not oh, deal yeah. with the uh, production Absolutely. Side. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I came from a, a magazine writing background. The last thing I wanted to do was like go downstairs to 8H and like tell a movie star that like they need to stop <laughs> doing the Spanish accent because it's throwing off the premise. You know, I'd much rather be stay, yeah, stay on the 17th floor. But I also pretty early on, like by my second season, I was writing a lot with John Mulaney and Marika Sawyer. And the three of us um, beginning like my second season and all the way through the end of my 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 finals, my fourth year there, we wrote together like every week. And they basically would do all the hard work in terms of producing the sketches. <laughs> like, like, like Melanie would always like be the one willing to go and talk to the cast and the hosts. And America was always the one who was willing to like talk to costumes and talk to props. And basically after the writing part of the sketch was over, I would pretty much hide for the rest of the week <laughs> and just hope that nobody yelled at me. Uh, yeah, so it was, it was, I got to kind of be part of a team where, where my weaknesses, where my weaknesses were, were less apparent. Before they really took the lead on the producing side, is there a particularly memorable uh, interaction with a celebrity host or, or anything that stands out in your memory that was odd thing that you had to kind of instruct someone on how to do, or especially being so young? I mean, I, oh gosh, I mean, the biggest thing that, the thing that would happen to me a lot my first year is that I would just write things that were really difficult for actors to do because I like was still thinking in terms of like fictional characters. <laughs> Is there an example uh, that comes to mind when you Oh when you yeah. Think about that? I mean I wrote this one commercial for for Kristen my first season um for Kristen Wig. For Kristen Wig called Jar Glove and it was like a infomercial parody. And it was uh you know it's like the classic black and white narration. You know, opening jars every time it's the same story. The twisting the 
the, you know, the <laughs> sign. And then it's just a list of, of um, increasingly crazy things that will happen to you if you don't have this product that they're selling you. You know, it's like the jar kills the husband and then, you know, you inevitably you have to then bury the body and then you need to, you know, you need to rebury it and like, you know, dismember the corpse. And of course, you ultimately (laughs) have to, you know, try to escape from the dogs. And then, you know, you have to study and appeal in prison and all this stuff can be avoided by this simple product, which is this glove that you wear to open up a jar. And, you know, I loved writing it. It was sort of me trying to like do a kind of like handy, you know, Schwarzwelder kind of kind of George Meyer kind of old fashioned SNL piece. And then they're like, okay, so it's going to be like a multi-day shoot. And next thing I know, like poor Kristen is like buried in like dirt <laughs> in like the freezing cold. And you're like, just like really how many hours this is this, happen, you know? Yeah. And she, she also has to like do nine other sketches that week because she's the star <laughs> of the show. And, and um, so there was a lot of just like me realizing maybe start remembering that these actors are human human beings who <laughs> yeah. human beings and people with places to be um so i, I definitely have, like some guilt looking back at like uh, the, my first season some of the stuff i subjected people to yeah did you feel like your style then changed due to that did you kind of simplify your ideas or were you forced to kind of scale back your your vision in that sense i uh, certainly yeah on a production level absolutely by my fourth year i was like one set you know and a <laughs> green screen and let's you know let's but then i um when i started producing shows like based on my my books like man seeking woman and 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 then um miracle workers which yeah were two, were two shows definitely ambitious uh yeah vision in that but yeah those those are those you know i basically forgot everything that i had learned and it was just like let's go for it who cares yeah. screw it screw it <laughs> so um but i was also yeah um i just i'm attracted to like big swings i always feel like it's just more fun to like have a spaceship land or you know have an animal talk or you know Set, set something on fire and I'd always just rather do that whenever I can. Yeah. Um, so you, you said you were there for four years. Um, and I think you left in 2011. Um, what was the, what was the impetus to leave SNL? Cause I know it's the kind of place where, you know, you can kind of, some people end up working there like Paula Pell for like two decades and, um, that it's seductive to just keep working there. So was it, was it your decision and why did you decide to, to leave it after four years? I left to go to Pixar. I started the week after yeah, the show ended. I went to Pixar. It was just going to be for the summer by like halfway through the summer. I just kind of realized like I'm really learning a lot here that I don't know. I really need to stay if I can. And I had to call Lauren and basically get permission to get out of the fifth year. Of, yeah, every, every writer, every writer signs the same. I don't know what it is today, but back then it was like you signed writers would sign a five-year contract. And so I had to like ask for permission to get out of year five and he was totally fine with it. And uh, it's not like I was holding that show together. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, yeah, it's okay. If that's you know. all right. Yeah, you don't need. Yeah, he didn't. Yeah, he, he didn't. He didn't offer to double my salary or, any, <laughs> or, or anything like that. Yeah. Is that that's um, not what you were fishing for? Yeah, uh, yeah. But he, um, he totally got it, and he was really he was he was always completely supportive of like my non SNL endeavors. He was that way with everybody. Um, like he was always very nice about my New Yorker stories and he would, he would read my books. And so when I went to Pixar, it wasn't like such a shock. And then, um, uh, I still go back, I still go back, you know, to help out sometimes at SNL. Yeah. I saw any, anytime John Mulaney hosts, you've been back writing. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. Right. Exactly. America Sawyer. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, that must be a very different experience to kind of drop in for a week as a writer versus being there week to week. It's the best. It's, it's way better. It's the best. Everyone else is so tired. They've been yeah. on it. they've been doing SNL for months, and you just walk right in, fresh, fresh rest. Um, well, it's 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 just great because you get to meet the kind of next generation. Um, they're they're so talented. The people working there right now are just so much funnier than I was when I was there. And uh, I just um, it's thrilling to get to write. It's thrilling to get to write for the you know the current cast and it's awesome to get to work with some of the writers, you know, people like Anna Dresden, you know, like who, who I, who ended up writing for um, one of my shows, uh, the second season of, of Miracle Workers. Um, I first met her when she was like a first year writer at SNL when I was back helping out. And I'm like, this is one of the funniest writers I've ever met. And um, she wrote um, my favorite episode of, of that season of Miracle Workers. And now she's one of the head writers of SNL, which I could have, I could have predicted. Um, is there a sketch that you wrote for, John, one of John Mulaney's hosting uh, gigs that, that sticks out to you as sort of the most uh, fun or the one that, that did the best or, or something that... Definitely, I think that 
our the, our, fa- our favorite uh, is Toilet Death Ejector, which is yes. a, 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 <laughs> a product designed to to help you out of this, uh, help you out of your biggest fear, which is dying on the toilet. And so. <laughs> Uh, this is a, a toilet that an old person can buy, and when you feel yourself dying, you press a button and <laughs> it uh, ejects you from the toilet. So you'll be found in some other place. You yeah, know, so you uh, don't die on the toilet. Exactly. And then a smart book, um, and you can pick between like the Bible or you know, or like Franzen if you're like you know from the Upper West Side, will land on your chest, and so you have, have the kind of illusion of, of uh, uh, erudition. Um, yeah, dignified discovery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He passed away. Oh no, that's awful. I'll say. They found him on the toilet. It's so embarrassing. Dying on the toilet. It's every senior's worst nightmare. You live a life of grace and honor only to pass in the most humiliating way imaginable. Ass up on a bathroom floor, a loaded toilet rotting behind you. Thankfully, there's a solution that's both elegant and dignified. The toilet death ejector. When you're on the toilet and you feel yourself dying, simply press the red button. Hydraulics beneath the seat will propel your dead body forward, hurl you gently through the air, and deposit you neatly on your bed. The toilet will then automatically flush and release a puff of lavender scent. Finally, a smart book will fall from the ceiling onto your chest to imply wisdom. Choose from impressive titles like the Bible, Henry David Thoreau's Walden, or latest Gladwell. So... When you went to Pixar, did you was it were you immediately working on Inside Out? Was that sort of why you went there? Yeah, I mean that was that was the main thing I worked on while I was there. But I worked on a lot of other projects too. Um, but I'm not. I guess I'm not. Still, probably not allowed to talk about. It. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, if you're, well, until until like the, until it's like on IMDb, I don't think you're supposed to talk about. It. Well, Inside Out is on IMDb, so I think we can talk. We can about talk about that, that one, but, yeah. But the um, rest now. That's just one of my absolute favorite. Uh, Pixar movies and I've um you know shown it to our niece and was really excited to sort of see it through her eyes and can't wait to show it to uh to you know our daughter. Um it's just a really special movie. Can you just talk about what that was like to kind of go in there and and start working on a project like that which is very ambitious and sort of the polar opposite of SNL like you said where it's this long lead thing and you have all this time and it you can really explore in a way that you probably couldn't previous to that. Well, for starters, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It was thrilling to learn from Pete Doctor. I mean, like, you know, he'd been working on a movie for a couple of years, I think, by the time I got there. And uh, it was awesome to learn about story from him, learn about how he, his process for like crafting characters and story arcs and character arcs, how he felt about three-act structure. And, um, you know, it was it was thrilling. And uh, I have taken those lessons hard and i even though i was only there like a year and a half like the 10 years since i have really thought about pete most weeks you know what would pete do in this situation what would he say about this this story choice and like is this as emotional as it can be is this would this pass muster you know with the pixar brain trust and it's something that um i think about a lot especially when writing these short stories um a lot of my short stories um are pretty brazenly plagiarized from <laughs> from Pixar structures. Uh, you don't have to work too hard to kind of like see the see the wires. Uh, it's, it's, it's often me just trying to rip off that place as much as I can. First day of school, very, very exciting. I was up late last night figuring out a new plan. Here it is, fear. <laughs> I need a list of all the possible negative outcomes on the first day at a new school. Way ahead of you there. Does anyone know how to spell meteor? Disgust. Make sure Riley stands out today, but also blends in. When I'm through, Riley will look so good, the other kids will look at their own outfits and barf. Joy. Yes, Joy? You'll be in charge of the console, keeping Riley happy all day long. And may I add, I love your dress. It's adorable. Oh, this old thing? Thank you so much. I love the way it twirls. Train of thought, right on schedule. Anger. Unload the daydreams. I ordered extra in case things get slow in class. Might come in handy if this new school is full of boring, useless classes, which it probably will be. Oh, sadness. I have a super important job just for you. Really? Mm-hmm. Follow me. And there. Perfect. This is the circle of sadness. Your job is to make sure that all the sadness stays inside of it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's that thing of, of telling stories from unlikely perspectives, I think, that really, you know, comes through in Pixar's work and in yours, talking about even like the, the story that you read, The Big Nap, you know, speaking from a from a child's perspective, or I know you've talked about uh, how the uh, the story from the perspective of a condom is kind of a, a Toy Story uh, inspired uh, piece. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, whether it, uh, Pixar, the, the, their kind of stroke of genius is to have a character who knows less than the viewer, you know, because they're a fish or they have no memory or yeah, they're that's a, where a lot of the comedy comes from. Yeah, they're an obsolete robot. Um, yeah, it's where the comedy comes from and where and where the sympathy comes from and where the and where the relatability comes from, because we've all we've all been in that place of feeling like, you know, uh, impaired in some way or, or, or naive in some way. We every every human children and adults alike know what that's like. And, and that's, those have always been the characters that I've loved, you know, from Homer Simpson to Wally. I love characters that are wildly uh, misinformed, naive, confused. And those are the characters that I try to write about. So yeah, like New Teeth, the, it's, it's, you know, an illiterate pirate Yes, starts off the tale. And then it's, it's a, a, a laser disc machine. Who's kind of becoming aware gradually of his obsolescence and, there's a baby detective. There's a, a fading mutant monkey, half monkey, half man superhero who's, who, who is trying to figure out what to do now that there are no aliens uh, for him to kill and smash anymore. There's, uh, there's all these characters that um, are really just trying to make sense of a world that the reader already knows. And um, weirdly what happens, I find, is when you write from a naive perspective, you can sometimes kind of be more emotionally raw uh, than you can when the characters are like super witty and like smart and whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely true for Inside Out. I mean, what what was your reaction to seeing the finished product of that movie after having worked on it? Because I imagine that must have been emotional. It was so, it was, yeah. It's emotional for anyone who watches the movie, but, but for it you was so, to be close to it. It's so interesting. And of course, it'd been years since I'd, since I'd done any work on it. And so some things were the same, some things had been changed. And it was fascinating to see like, because uh, I was one of many writers who worked on the project. And uh, it was really, it was really cool to see it all. I mean, I remember the premiere in LA. Um, at, at the time, I think I had been away from Pixar for like, uh, probably about two or three years. And I hadn't seen anything during that chunk of time to leave a project and it's still kind of in storyboards and there's some there's some dialogue but it's kind of temporary and then suddenly you're watching this like 3d animated thing it's pretty jarring coming up simon talks about the completely surreal experience of getting the chance to write an episode of his all-time favorite show and later how he ended up casting steve buscemi as god Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? What was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes on Wikipedia with host and friend of the last laugh, Darcy Carden, and her favorite comedian friends, as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to Wikihole, you will learn that's the sciencey term for eardrum. Wikihole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders. How the hell did we get here? 
Follow Wikihole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to Wikihole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. We have had so many other SNL alums on this show, like Sarah Silverman, Kevin Nealon, Colin Quinn, and more. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Simon Rich. You mentioned Homer Simpson, and I know you, you got to write an episode of The Simpsons, which I imagine was a, was a big dream of yours. Um, the dream, yeah. The, yeah, that was, I mean, that was my absolute goal as a child was to write for The Simpsons. And so, to, yeah, to get to do that was really, it's probably like, a, a, it's the thing I'm the most grateful for that I got to, for my career. That's the thing that I'm like, feel the most lucky to have gotten a chance to do is to get to write an episode of that show. When you come in to write, you know, one episode of The Simpsons, which I know other comedians and, and writers have done. How does that work? Are you going into the, the writer's room and working with everyone? Or are you just kind of writing it on your own? Or uh, Yeah. So yeah, I'll tell you the exact. So I, I walked in and pitched uh, some premises, pitched some ideas. And um, here's what's crazy. This is like how you would imagine it as like a 10 year old. <laughs> uh, and you would never think like as a 30, 30 year old that this is, this is what would happen. Um, I sat directly across from Matt Groening. He was there. <laughs> I, I didn't expect him to be there or know that he was going to be there. I had met a couple of the producers before, but I never, obviously never met him. And I was completely shocked. And he was like, let's hear your Simpsons ideas. Oh, like, this is crazy. He also said to me, that chair that you're sitting in is the chair I sat in when I pitched the Simpsons. <laughs> wow. and, I, and nobody laughed. I still to this day don't know if he was telling the truth or trying to like haze me. Um, but he <laughs> seems like a nice guy. So I think it might have been true. Yeah. It seems unlikely that that was the same chair, but. Seems unlikely. Um, and then I just pitched, you know, three ideas and they luckily they liked one of them. Um, the other thing about Matt Groening is that, and this is true of everybody at Pixar as well, is that constantly drawing. Constantly. Like, it, it's almost like um, the way, like, some people several years ago would have, like, a fidget spinner, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he's just literally constantly drawing. So as you're and, pitching to him, he's just doodling. Oh, yeah. Your, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. As he's ordering lunch, as he's pitching ideas for the episode they're rewriting, he's constantly drawing, and uh, his drawings all look like uh, Simpsons characters. And then <laughs> That's uh, pretty and cool. It, it picks art's the same deal. People are just, it's completely socially normal for everybody constantly to be drawing, <laughs> everybody else. And, uh, and then, like, the meeting's over, everybody kind of walks off, you know, from the character design meeting to the script meeting, and they leave behind these piles of paper. And as a writer, I would just like go and look around and like pick them up. And it's like, <laughs> it's amazing. It's like all these Cal Arts, you know, these former Cal Arts students, incredible, realistic, interesting, hilarious, twisted caricatures of each other. You can sometimes <laughs> like, you sometimes you see a drawing, and you're like, oh, I knew that that writer was mad. I knew that that. <laughs> That story artist was mad at that other story artist because look at this caricature I found crumbled up on the on the garbage, um, and then it all yeah, just ends up in the trash. This ends up in the trash, yeah. So it's uh, I learned a, a ton at Pixar about um, visual storytelling, which um, really helped me as I started to approach Man Seeking Woman and Miracle Workers because like um, I was able to kind of take some big swings. So kind of moving on to. Man Seeking Woman, which was a, a show that I really, really enjoyed when it was on. Um, that was sort of the first big adaptation of your own work, right? In a, in a longer form thing. So what were the what were the challenges of putting that together and kind of really taking the the helm of something as opposed to, you know, coming in, being a writer or being on a writing staff or, um, you know, something like that? This was really, this was your thing. Yeah. Well, for starters, thank you. Thanks for watching. Um, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I mean, I never thought that I would have a chance in TV uh, to have the same kind of creative freedom that I had in, in my short story collections. And that's why I really, I resisted LA for like a long time. Like I didn't really, I, I, I never wrote for any sitcoms in my twenties. Cause I always felt like if you get into that world, you end up being often, you end up having like a lot of uh, rules and conventions that you need to, you need to stick to. Um, this is also a different, era you know maybe i wouldn't 
maybe I wouldn't feel that way if I was born in, you know, 1998. Maybe I would be like, right, TV, of course, you can do whatever yeah. you want. There's no <laughs> restrictions. It's the most free, open environment in creative history. But but uh, in the in the in the mid thousands, you know, it was sort of a, a different vibe. And so I was like, yeah, I don't really, you know, sitcoms. I'm not really sure. And then I basically challenged myself to just pitch Man Seeking Woman the way I would actually really, truly want to see it in the world and, and um, did not fully expect people to really let me do it. And um, uh, when they did, it was just, it was so exciting, you know, and, and they, and they let me um, do whatever I want. They let me cast Eric Andre. They let me do, you know, they let me, they let <laughs> oh, me. Yeah. Was, was that your idea to, to get Eric Andre in the show? I mean, just his show had, his show, I think had, I don't know if it had started yet, um, but I think I had somehow got in my hands on some early Eric Andre show clips. And I just thought he was like the the funniest performer I'd ever seen. And, uh, and so versatile. And when I was thinking about like how to populate this world, and obviously I loved writing for Jay. And uh, yeah, Jay Barishaw was a great, uh, great sort of uh, stand-in protagonist for you. And so fun and such, just such a perfect straight man. Excellent timing. Two shots, please. Dude, this place is sick. There's this girl, Sarah. She's all over me. Are you... How, how is it so easy for you to talk to these girls? Like, what's your secret? Dude, there's no secret. All you gotta do is find a girl, walk up to her, say hi, do spiralize, ask her her name, maybe buy her a drink, wait, wait, and wait. then... Go back. What, what did you just say? Buy her a drink. No, before that. Say hi? No, the uh, uh, spiral something, something with spiral. Spiralize. You know, it's how you get girls to like you. One second. What's up, girl? What's up? See you on the dance floor. Can't wait. See? I, I've never seen that before in my life. Your, your eyes turn into these spinning... Spinning hypnotic spirals, right, spiralized. Well, how did you learn to do that? What, the same way everybody learns. The day I hit puberty, a wizard appeared and taught me. Did that not happen to you? No. Are you sure? A tall guy, pointy hat, he had a long white beard. Yes, I know what a wizard looks like. I'm saying I've never met one. Hold on, wait a minute, stop. If you can't do spiralize, how do you hit on girls? I, I don't know, I just walk up to them and say random stuff. About what? The room we're in, or uh, current events, like if there's something going on in the news, or if there's a song playing, I'll reference the song, stuff like that. So you can't do spiralize. We had, yeah, just so much fun writing for, like, you know, Maya Erskine is now on Pen, Pen 15 is great. Anna Conkle was on our show, too. They were in the same episode or a couple of the same episodes. And then and then I, I because it was filmed in Canada, I got to work with I got to hire most most of the kids in the hall. Four out of five. Oh, wow. Who, which one did you miss? Missed Foley. Didn't get Foley oh, okay. for, for whatever yeah. reason. But uh, the other we got the other four. That's and, pretty um, good. Yeah, kids in the kids in the hall was a big influence on on that show as well. Just kind of the the, the marriage of insane high concept absurdity and like extremely dull naturalism. Just like exactly. uh, you know, like I always think about the uh, the fur trader scene. You know, the in kids in the hall where it's it's the the Canadian guys in a canoe canoeing through a drab corporate office. <laughs> shooting arrows into the backs of of of, uh, of corporate employees so that they could then sell their suits as pelts. You know, uh, I could see the influence on the on, of that on your work. Totally, yeah, and 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 I would talk to them about it, and they would like truly like explain to me how they had shot certain things, and <laughs> it was so fun to to, to work with them. And um, yeah, I loved I loved doing that show. It was it was a really fun three years, and so many great writers. I got to work with so many great writers on that show. America Sawyer. Um, from SNL, she she helped and, and and did a year of that show, and yeah, a lot of really talented writers. Uh, Stephanie Robinson, Ian Maxton Graham from The Simpsons, and then Rob Padnick and Dan Merck, who now run Miracle Workers, started on that show. I feel like the scale only grew with with Miracle Workers, especially because it changes every season, and you're kind of it's getting feels like it's getting more and more ambitious in some ways. And of course, on that show, you have Daniel Radcliffe as your protagonist, which was a exciting uh, casting, I'm sure, when that happened, because it's really given you know a lot of people a different view of him than than maybe we had from from Harry Potter and the other stuff that he had done. Yeah, that was that's what was so exciting about casting him is because I knew how versatile he was, but I felt 
like it was sort of like a secret, like not everybody in the in the general public and knew how funny he is, how funny he was. Yeah, but I had seen him. Obviously, I, like everybody else in the universe, I loved him as Harry Potter. But I had seen him on Broadway. I'd seen some of his stuff in the West End. I'd seen him in in some very strange independent films. And I was like, okay, this guy is is a, is a movie star, obviously, but he is also a hugely versatile character actor and a funny character actor who can sing and dance and do slapstick comedy and play high status and low status and play smart and play dumb. And he, uh, you know, it's, he's this brilliant actor who's going to work for like 75 years. And um, so I, I, I basically, once he was on board, it was how can we find similarly versatile actors who would be willing to take equally big swings each year. And, um, but Dan was, Dan Radcliffe was a big part of the casting process because he was the producer on the show. And it wasn't just me calling the shots in terms of who would join like the repertory company. It was very much like, and Lauren Michaels helped as well. Uh, but every, every major casting decision, it was always a conversation with Radcliffe about whether, you know, whether he thought it would work. And in some cases, if it was someone, uh, who, who we didn't really know, we would, we would, do a test on camera with him and 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 the and the and the actor to see how well they worked. That's what happened with uh, Karen Sony and Geraldine Biswanathan, who were both fantastic. Yeah, um, they're both really good. But we did like chemistry tests with them and Radcliffe on camera, and uh, and it immediately became clear that it was an awesome fit. So um, yeah, I was, was I was curious if it took much convincing to get uh, Steve Buscemi to to play God on the in the first season of the show. You know, it was a lot easier than I thought because I mean, I, I, we've all we've all been, you know, everyone involved in that show, like huge Steve fans forever, and I think he's one of the greatest living American actors. I mean, he's he's remarkable and, and a fantastic television director as well, whose directing work by itself is like just an amazing body of work. But yeah, we sent him a script. We sent him a, uh, the episode where the conceit of the show is that, uh, for those who haven't seen it, is that God is um, uh, the CEO, the kind of out-to-lunch CEO of Heaven, Inc., which is the uh, grossly mismanaged company in the sky that is in charge of running Earth. And uh, he uh, decides that he wants to blow up Earth because, you know, it's clearly a, a, a failing enterprise. And he wants to start a, a, a new a new company, which uh, he decides is going to be a kind of novelty theme restaurant um, <laughs> <laughs> called Lazy Susan's, and um, which is too dumb to even describe. But <laughs> episode six uh, of the first season, he goes to try to convince his parents to invest money in his post-Earth project, <laughs> his first project yes. since Earth, which is this terrible restaurant. And his parents are basically this upstanding, he comes from, you find out this very fancy upstanding family of gods where everybody but him is a god of like a perfect planet where everyone's immortal and everything is great. And uh, he's like the black sheep god. He's the god who who created Earth, the stupid planet that doesn't even really work <laughs> and it's frozen on the top and the bottom where everybody dies. And uh, uh, Chris Parnell and Margaret Cho plays, plays parents. And my favorite line in that episode is, um, which was written by Lucas Gardner, is one of my favorite writers ever. He is forced to describe some of the animals on Earth, and he's like too embarrassed almost to admit like what a giraffe is. And Chris Parnell is the dad. Says like, this is what you, this is what you did with the money we gave you. This is what you <laughs> did with the four thousand dollars. And you find out that <laughs> I guess Earth, Earth costs four thousand dollars to make. Yeah, which I always sense. thought was a great detail <laughs> by by Lucas Gardner. But yeah, I, he read that script and uh, said, "I'm in. I want to play this. I want to play this dumb bad guy." Explain cows. I don't want to do this anymore. Tell mom and dad what a cow is. It's like a big dog you can drink from. And what's a dog? A small cow you can be friends with. Tell them about giraffes. What's a giraffe? It's just a tall dog with... Louder. Speak up. Tall dog with a leg for a neck. What is going on? What is happening? Are, are these real animals? You made all these things? This is what you did with the four grand we gave you? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, he's so good in the show. 
And then, of course, this past year, you had uh, an American Pickle come out um, with uh, with Seth Rogen, um, which was sort of the first uh, big film project based on your writing. Um, was that a, a very different experience to make something as a as a film as opposed to this type of longer running series? Well, yes, very different because you know. Well, I mean, on, on a basic level, I was the, the the screenwriter and not the director, so it's like as a screenwriter you are not as in charge of something as 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 uh, you are as the showrunner of a TV show. Did you kind of have to to write it and then let it out of your hands and let let someone else kind of take the reins? As a screenwriter you really have to do that. Sometimes if you're lucky as a, as a sort of like producing screenwriter, then you'll get to like weigh in and have an opinion which is like even that is amazing. And I and I certainly was able to to do that on the project and at least you know Seth and 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 uh, Evan and 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 Brandon, who really brilliant guy who directed it. They would at least like ask me what I my opinion, which was great. <laughs> but ultimately, it's as a screenwriter on any project, you kind of have to know that it's not entirely going to be your your vision. But I love how it turned out, and I thought Seth was just Seth Rogen was just so good, so much better than I even hoped, and that's why I pitched it in the first place to Seth is because I really, my dream always from moment one was that he would play both parts and I knew he would nail it. And, and I really think he did. I thought he was hysterically yeah, funny yeah, and really real. And yeah, he's great. Um, yeah. I looked back and saw that you, you actually wrote his first SNL monologue, which was your yes. second episode on the show. Yes. That was, that's how we first met. It was um, his first time hosting and it was my second week on the job and I wrote it Friday night because there was no monologue and they was like, whoever, you know, there's still an open slot on the show. And, you know, being a first year writer, you're just yeah, gun, gunning for, yeah, gunning for any bit of airtime you can. And it might've been the, it was the first thing I wrote that made it on the show. Cause my, yeah. Cause my first week, my sketch was cut after dress. Oh really? What was that one? That was a sketch I wrote for LeBron James. <laughs> yeah. He was the host. Your he first was week, the right? host my first week. And it was that Bill Hader and his wife, played by Amy Fuller, had a memory form mattress. And Bill's character was complaining to Keenan, the mattress, the memory foam mattress salesman, because his form was always there when he went to work. But whenever he came back from work, there would always seem to be a LeBron James shaped indentation <laughs> on his side of the bed. That's very funny. It was actually cut for time, so we made okay. so it, so it played in front of the so audience. It did well. Did well ish. It did well enough to get, I think, a slot like after update or maybe two after update. And um, so I, of course, called everybody I knew from high school. I was like, I wrote something on the TV, and of course, you know, oh, cut for time. Wait, that's... was that a, was that a taped bit? No, it was a live sketch. Oh, okay, so I was wondering if it exists somewhere uh, from. Well, it from does. I mean, yeah. it exists. Yes, somewhere not, in the, um, so not, not on in, YouTube, not in reality, <laughs> somewhere in the bowels of NBC. But um, but I think um. Uh, what was too bad is we could never really try it again because you you need somebody who's way <laughs> taller, James. way taller yeah. than yeah than than a cast member, and I don't think we ever had like a super. I was just I I think when The Rock hosted, you should I, try it again. We I, we might I might have repitched, and people were like yeah it wasn't that good. So talking about sort of what's what's coming up next for you, um, I know one thing is the uh, the Everyday Parenting Tips movie with uh, with Ryan Reynolds, right? Um, can you can you talk about that one at all, or what? Uh, you know, what, I what really we can expect on that. I really can't talk about, unfortunately, about like any of the adaptations because it's like I am the screenwriter, so I'm like, so it's like I don't have that much power, <laughs> and and it's like you don't want to be the person making like uh, pre announcements in the press when it's like there's like ten more important people involved that <laughs> that should that should get to you know do the press release, but um it's really fun to adapt these things for, for TV and film. And, uh, I really enjoy it. Uh, I, I, uh, I try really hard though, to just kind of, when I'm writing the books to think about it really as a collection of stories and not as like future adaptable premises, because the, it's so unpredictable what is actually going to end up on the screen that if you try to like game the system and think about it in those terms, I think it would paralyze you or it would paralyze me anyway. Um, well, the other one is uh, the the Wonka movie, which is uh, Timothy Chalamet's uh, Wonka prequel, which I, I know is also kind of under wraps. But I am curious, just from your perspective, because I know you're such a huge Roald Dahl fan, um, what it has been like to try to step into that world and whether you have any concerns about sort of uh, tampering with a classic like that. 
Right. Well, yeah. I, once again, of course, I can say absolutely nothing. But um, what <laughs> well, I that's no fun. Yeah, I'm sorry. But what I can tell you <laughs> is that I'm a, a lifelong Raw Doll fan, and and um, and he has completely inspired my short story writing. Yeah, I put him, you know, the top of the high, of, maybe even at the very top of my list of all time greatest short story writers. And um, obviously, love his books for kids uh, as well. And um, yeah, he's one of my my all time favorites. Yeah, I was a huge Roald Dahl fan, you know, growing up as well. I think that as a uh, as a Jew, you have to kind of reckon with the uh, his his anti Semitic uh, past a little bit, which is which is a tricky thing about Roald Dahl. That's always a rough day in the life of a Jewish reader. You know, <laughs> a rough a rough childhood inevitability is learning about Dahl's anti Semitism. Yeah, who's yeah, everyone everyone's yeah. anti Semitism, but um. I'm able to overlook it personally. The work speaks for itself. I'm always like, eh, he would have liked me though. <laughs> <laughs> if we did, we would have had, a, we'd have a couple drinks and he'd be like, you know what, you, you're all right. What he would say to me. <laughs> you're one of the good ones. So uh, I want to end with our speed round, uh, which is called the first laugh. So if we can just run through these uh, relatively quickly. Do you remember the first piece of comedy that really made you laugh as a kid? Yeah, I do. Maybe it's something we've mentioned already, but I, or maybe not. It's uh, definitely, I remember it very vividly because it was like, it was such an intense experience and I was laughing so hard that I uh, was in physical agony. And it was, I had woken up in the middle of the night or middle of the night from my five-year-old <laughs> five perspective <laughs> Um, and it was, um, it was a Saturday night live sketch and it was honey. I shrunk Hans and Franz. Oh, and it was a parody of honey. I, <laughs> I shrunk the kids, parody of honey. I shrunk the kids where Hans and Franz had shrunk. And even though they were very small, they were still thought that they were very strong. And I, <laughs> uh, I have not rewatched it since because I'm so worried it will like, <laughs> it won't hold up. It won't hold up to my, 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 uh, five-year-old memory of it, which is that it was the funniest thing anyone had ever done. And, um, <laughs> And I do actually think that that basically thematically has informed all of my writing, that one sketch of just like <laughs> people who think that they are more than, more than they are, you know? And it's like, okay, these muscle men think they're big, but they're small. That's basically the bit that I do over and over again in different <laughs> guises. So I think, um, yeah, but uh, not only did I love it, but I think it actually maybe changed me forever as a writer. <laughs> do you remember the first time that you knew you were funny? I do, yeah. And it was on the playground and it was like a, a, a little late, I was probably six or seven. And, um, I remember, um, there was like a mean teacher and I th think I made a joke making fun of the teacher and everybody laughed. And I thought <laughs> this, this is going to help. This is going to help yeah. the situation because <laughs> at right. the time I wasn't, wasn't exactly, uh, you know, excelling in the other playground activities. Uh, that involved, you know, more kicking and running and jumping and throwing things. But I was like, yeah, this making fun of the teacher thing. This <laughs> might, this might help. I imagine getting your first piece in the New Yorker is was a was a big deal. Do you remember the uh, the experience of of finding out that it was accepted or seeing it in the magazine or, or anything like that? Yeah, I couldn't believe that it was happening. And I kept thinking they would take it back. And so I remember <laughs> like literally staying up the night before and like refreshing the New Yorker like website. Oh yeah. Like just to see hour the table after of hour to just be like, <laughs> maybe they pulled it and, and maybe they're not really going to run. I, I just couldn't believe that it was real. Cause I had been submitting pieces to them for years. I, I, um, I started sending pieces out to magazines in high school and, um, didn't start selling them anywhere for, you know, until like basically sophomore year of college, junior year of college. That's still, that's still pretty good. But it was, you know, it was after like four <laughs> years of, of rejection letters, uh, including, you know, plenty, obviously from, from them. Although I was, believe me, rejected by, by like way less august magazines than the New Yorker. Um, and, um, so yeah, I, I, I was so thrilled. Um, you mentioned that you're the first thing you got on SNL was that Seth Rogen monologue. Do you remember the first sketch or uh, commercial parody or something that you got on that you felt like just really worked in a, in a bigger way or connected with the audience uh, in a big way? Yeah. Let me think the first one that I was really proud of was a, a sketch that, that first season that I wrote with Kent Sublet, who is um, still, I think he's still there. One of the all time great SNL writers. Um, and he, he's, he's one of the head writers um, now, I think, or at least he has been in recent years, Brownlee's writer performer who uh, came to SNL via Groundlings as so many people do. And, um, but we, we started the same week 
and he's it's like I <laughs> he's yeah. still there. It's crazy to me. But um, but we wrote a scene together in my first season, um, and it was like a marriage therapy scene where it was very clear that um, uh, Amy Poehler and Will Forte were the couple, and it was very clear that Amy had married Will Forte solely for citizenship. Um, but he somehow couldn't see that that was the main issue of their marriage. <laughs> Didn't understand. And um, for whatever reason, it, it just like, it was it, writing this character for Amy. It just kind of was like the the biggest swing that uh, I had taken at, at, at the time in terms of performance. Like um, until that sketch, all of the pieces I was turning in, the situation was very strange and absurd and premise driven. But then the actors um, kind of behaved like regular people, you know, because that, that was, was what sort was of part of it. That yeah. was sort of part of it. It's like, oh, it was going to be a really strange situation, but everyone's going to be acting normally because that's how you do comedy. You know, that's how The Simpsons works. And then it was finally like, oh, no, it helps if the actor themselves can actually like do a, an interesting performance choice. Yeah, especially when you're trying to get big laughs from an audience. Exactly. And so that's like the kind of thing, like pitching that premise to Kent, I remember he immediately was like, oh, and she could, she could perform it this way or that way. And it was like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> this important. is, this is why the groundlings uh, is a big, is a, is a big part <laughs> of this, a, a big part of the show. And it's not just a bunch of New Yorker writers, you know? Um, so I learned a lot from working with him as well. And then finally, what's the last piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard? Something you want to shout out or that you really enjoyed um, that you that you've seen recently or read or, or anything. Yeah. I think the funniest piece, I, I read a lot of like online comedy. I think like a lot of the funniest like prose being written right now is, is like written for comedy blogs. There's certainly some funny novelists out there, but like, and funny short story writers, but like a lot of the funniest stuff I read is by like relatively unknown, uh, like, like people who, who write largely for the internet. Um, and, uh, yeah, a few of my favorites, I think, uh, Ryan Conk is really funny. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, I think, um, well, Mary Houlihan is great. Uh, Jen Spira is really funny. And, um, but the, the funniest piece I've read online is, uh, I think ever is by a writer named Lucas Gardner, who wrote, who I mentioned before. Cause he, cause he wrote that up. I, I hired him based on his online comedy writing. And then he ended up writing my favorite episode of, of miracle workers, that God episode with for Steve Buscemi. But his, the reason I hired him is cause he wrote the main reason is because he wrote this piece, which is I think the funniest piece ever. And I will badly paraphrase it because you know, why not? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and it's a, it's a space, it's a, a space camp sending a letter to parents, basically telling them that, you know, unfortunately this boy, their son having worked with him for weeks, they have, are basically breaking the news that like, he's not cut out for space. <laughs> and it's this very funny, charming piece about like, you know, this, this, uh, this kid who is like, um, clearly very unathletic and uncoordinated. And, and, and it's, it's already like a strong, funny piece. And then halfway there's this turn where the letter goes, and this is where, unfortunately, we have to tell you some, a, a new bit of information, which is unfortunately he has been sent into space. <laughs> <laughs> And then it becomes this piece about imagining this kid actually truly in space. And it was just like the levels of this piece to start off with something that was already charming and, and sweet. And then to end, and then to end in this incredibly heightened life or death absurdist place was so thrilling to me. And, and um, I'm really always inspired by like um, the funny writing happening in the world. There's, there's so, there's so much talent out there. I think that, so much, so much of it is accessible online now, and it's really cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I'll let you uh, get back to parenting, uh, which is, is very important, as, as we both know. Yes, thank you. And congrats again to you on the, on, on <laughs> the baby. You. So exciting. All right. Have a good one. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the great questions. Thank you again to Simon Rich for being my guest on today's show. That was a lot of fun. You can pick up his latest collection of stories, New Teeth, wherever you get your books. And we will put a link to purchase it in the description for this episode as well. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. 
The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. Or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.